Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today I'm sitting down with Clement Toulamon, the International Development Director, I guess, or Partner? Both. Both. At Interactive, the social intelligence company. Welcome, Clement. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome to Sydney. Yes. Well, it's a bit like coming home for you it because is. you lived here for a it while is. and that's where we first met. Indeed. So I lived here for 12 years, um, about 10 years back, did my university here, started my career here. My dad uh, moved here a while back, was the head of Unilever, and uh, it became a bit like a second home to us. So I'm glad to be back. Well, uh, I'm going to use what I know of Interactive's methodology on you and say the purpose purpose of this uh, podcast is actually to explore the the methodology and the philosophy and also how that applies across multiple cultures and even if we have time to uh, explore how that works into particular categories within business. So there you go. Have I done a good job at setting up the purpose? What would be your purpose of this podcast? For me, the the purpose beyond spending some time with someone I like and exchanging some some interesting ideas, it's also getting exposure because um, there's nothing more valuable than... um, people relaying our message, um, which I think needs to be heard. Uh, we have some big growth ambitions uh, around the world and especially in this in this in Asia Pac and Australia, New Zealand. So this is an opportunity for, for, for me to get uh, to get our, our message across. And happy to help. Thank you. Because I remember the first time we had a conversation about what you were doing. You know, I suddenly you uh, you had been at uh, Capgemini and before that PwC, from Indeed. my, my uh, understanding. Indeed. And then suddenly you're a uh, working at this uh, French company called Interactive. I think that I got it close enough. Close but, enough. Um, but uh, and I said to you, well, what's that about? And you said, well, it's about helping people. Uh, uh, you know understand and have better business relationships and better interactions. Mm. And I thought to myself, as I'm sure many people do, uh, well, but isn't that just talking to each other? Is that a reaction you get from a lot of people? Not so much. Not so much. Because the, the people we meet are generally have, have already got an idea of what we do and what need they're serving. And I think Companies and businesses in general have matured to the fact that communication is important and it's not just something that people uh, have by default. It's a skill uh, that can be can be developed like like anything else. So um, unless, you know, uh, there's a few industry sectors still where that's not being identified. And I think communication, advertising and um, and marketing in general is still a field where it's I believe is lacking behind other sectors. But when you look at banks, when you look at um, consulting services, uh, professional services of all sorts, the automobile industry, the FMCGs, they've all identified that it's that that it's absolutely core. You know, let's take an example of of a consulting firm or a bank. You know, whether you go, if you take the big names in in the market, whether you go to company one, company two, company three, the offer is roughly the same, the profile of people that hire is roughly the same. 
Uh, the processes they follow is roughly the same. The price at which they sell is roughly the same. And what makes the difference is the person you end up speaking to. And the question is, do you want to buy from them rather than from someone else? So it's becoming all other things being equal. It's becoming a big, big, big differentiator is the way people, the postures they adopt, the way they listen, the way they speak. Uh, uh, and it's never a guarantee of us doing business together, but it's, if we end up not doing business together, at least people should think, gee, I would have liked to. Mm. I've found um, often salespeople and marketers and uh, will, will believe that because they're in a sales role or a communications role, that they intuitively know how to communicate. And yet uh, often they're the ones that build the relationship first before they get to the point yeah. of the meeting. Indeed. Um and, you know, it's, how can I say, it's not about whether people know how to or whether they don't. It's, a, a, and I want to highlight something. I, I personally don't use the word to communicate. That's not what I focus on. I focus on relationships. Because, you know, even between you and I, Darren, is I can communicate really well with you uh, and have with you poor relationship. That's possible. And at the same time, I can miscommunicate sometimes. We can get upset at each other, but on the whole, have quite a deep, trusting and productive relationship. That's possible. So communication is a means, an important one, but it's not the guarantee of us wanting to do stuff together, being together, working together. It's not a guarantee. It's a much broader and more complex thing than that simple tool, which is pure communication. But communication uh, then also is how you define that because communication is not just the words I say, not just it's the way I say them, it's the uh, posture that I take, it's whether I listen and clearly are listening and, and uh, taking on board what you're saying and processing that and then responding in an appropriate way, Absolutely. which is the foundation of how people actually align or understand each other's values and positions and and uh, and their purpose. And so I think that's, you know, trust. Uh, it would be very hard, I'd imagine, to build trust between two people without saying a word. Probably. Yeah, Probably. so that's, it, that's how essential, from my perspective, communicating is. Yes. Because I, to, to building relationships. Absolutely. But but you can you can apply all of the proper codes of communication technically and still have a degraded relationship, and that's the point. Uh, because how can I say? Well, it's um, empathy, isn't it? Isn't isn't part of building a relationship is and trust is showing empathy for the other person. Yes, you know, really not, putting not, yourself in their position. Yeah, but not just, you know, there's an expression is the same in, in French. You know, we say people are good with people. Mm. Um, but there's some people who are really good with people. But when it actually comes to getting conversations to produce results, they're actually pretty poor. Mm. Because for me, relationships, especially in the context of work, are not just about being liked. They're about getting stuff done. Mm. And unfortunately, um when you look at being good with people, it, for, it forgets the, the production aspect of the conversation. Yeah? If, you, if you ask anyone on earth, whether they're French or Australian or Chinese or Japanese, whether they're very senior or very junior in a company, man or woman, and regardless of their personality style or their 
the language in which they speak. You ask them, how do you want to be spoken to? And people will always say, I want it to be said in a way that's direct and to the point, as long as it's polite and respectful. Um, and unfortunately, when you listen to the way conversations go, especially when pressures is on, when there's uncertainty, when there's the fear of losing, um, um, people conversations go in a very, very different direction to that. Um, and direct becomes blunt and polite becomes obsequious and respect becomes often submissive. Um, so it's, it's, this is why I talk about relationships where for me, there's a real discipline behind it. And I think this is one of the very, very original aspects of, of what it is we do with Antarctic is it's not just about being good with people. It's about actually about having a process and a discipline about how the quality of that relationship, the esteem, the trust, the respect, and the liking for each other actually ends up producing something. And then on the other extreme, and that's often what troubles me with communication techniques rather than a discipline, which is what it is we do, it's very focused on the effectiveness side of things, but it completely forgets the fact that I'm talking to someone and they need to trust me. And if you suspect at any given moment and in a conversation, I'm applying a technique to you, you'll probably start to be quite wary of me and rightly so. Yeah. So the whole challenge is how can I be direct and to the point whilst polite and respectful at the same time, uh, which is something people feel they have to choose too often. Um, and I think I deeply think and I know for having been doing this for more than 10 years now that it's not necessarily the case. It's interesting that you pull out that idea of communication techniques because uh, a lot of presentation skills and communication skills, it's about learning specific techniques. And the thing about that is that if it's not actually part or doesn't come across as part of you, it questions authenticity and integrity. Because suddenly, is this person being real with me or are they just saying this because that's what they've been trained to say absolutely and i'll I'll, I'll give an example you know there's a lot of talk about the importance the importance of nonverbal language Mm. and you know there's statistics that in my view are quite questionable about the percentage of the message that comes across through nonverbal um um and you know try, try to build trust or try to build a relationship with anyone or sign a contract without words, that's pretty hard. Mm. Um, and if I, um, the thing is, we, we try, people try to learn how to interpret other people's nonverbal language. And at the same time, they try to decode their own and replace uh, and try to control the way they behave with their hands and their face and all of that. It becomes robotic. Mm. Uh, you know, people on the podcast can't see you, but yes, it does, <laughs> yeah. as, as you've just been mimicking. Um, and those are both very manipulative. I mean, when I look at, unless you've got people with, you know, certain deficiencies, most people I come across are pretty good at understanding other people's nonverbal language. Hmm. You don't intuitively. need... Intuitively. Intuitively. Yeah. You know, I think that's a great skill that human beings have. So if default. I do this... I, I give I me a sense of what that means. Yeah. I might be wrong, yeah. but at least I get an impression within a fraction of a second of what that might mean. And the, the problem is not whether I can interpret it, the problem is, what do I do with the impre- interpretation I got? Mm. Because I, if I keep the interpretation for me and start adjusting the the strategy of the conversation, the way that I behave, without having addressed what I just saw, that's when it starts breaking down. Or if I start to try controlling my own nonverbal communication, that's when it starts breaking down because you'll start paying attention to it. Mm. 
It's uh, all look, about alignment I've, I've between words so and many, hands, right? Absolutely. I've had so many examples of that between agencies and marketers where the agency is interpreting a marketer's uh, nonverbal signs without actually checking in. And I keep saying to them, it's okay to say, is everything okay? If someone suddenly changes their position, I'm inclined, you know, and I think mm, they've taken a, a, a dislike or, they, you know, I've lost, somehow lost this conversation. I'll just stop what I'm saying and say, is everything okay? Absolutely. Because, or, or I get the impression I just lost you with what I said, yeah. whatever the impression might be. Yeah. Absolutely. Because if you don't check in, you're not really communicating. You're not. This is, the, this is exactly what's wrong with the idea it's, it's of the word. A, it's called a game of chess. Well, the word presenting infers that it's a one-way thing, that I present to you and you just sit there and accept. Absolutely. But that's not effective either as a piece of communication or to get someone to buy something or do something yes. because if I haven't got you on aligned and agreeing with what I'm saying, then nothing's going to happen because you'll just sit there going, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And can you imagine if we started applying all of these techniques that we learn in the business world, if we started applying them in our at home and with our friends, they'd start <laughs> making fun of us pretty quick and we'd lose a few friends along the way and, and our kids would mock us. But that's to show that it's absurd. And, and I think if it... It doesn't change. I mean, the way I should relate and behave and engage with someone, whether that someone is a prospect, a client, a potential partner, uh, my wife, my kids, or my mother-in-law, frankly, behavior-wise, there should be very, very little difference. The only real difference is what we talk about. Mm. The you content. Know, the content. That's the difference. Well, because the purpose changes. The purpose changes. But they're generally, unless it's only for the mere pleasure of being with someone, there generally is a purpose. And people forget that. Mm. Um, uh, and people forget that. Um, so, and I, I think a lot of these techniques which apply to management, apply to sales, apply to negotiation, apply to all the different various fields of business, um, they end up, you know, with creating in people's minds a split between who I am at work and who I am outside mm -hmm. of work. And naturally, when people are free to be who they are, m unless they have some issues with their history, their background, their education, most people are pretty good at creating bonds. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when they start to, uh, but they, 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 everything they learn in the context of work makes it all very artificial. And there's then there's, a Tom at work and a Tom at home. And there's a, a Sophie at work and a Sophie at home. And I think a lot of the stress and uh, discomfort and and uh, pain that people go through uh, through their careers is very linked to that split. They become two. Yeah, well, multi-personality multi disorder, Absolutely. isn't it? You, know, you start having to live two lives. Absolutely. And remember, and, and then how many times have you seen people or you may, uh, I've worked with people that have a certain persona, then under pressure in either their personal life or work life or both, they suddenly change. And you think, oh, my God, what's wrong? What's happened is the effort of maintaining those personas has just become too much as they deal with whatever that is. Yes. And I, I remember when 
you know, because Darren, you and I, you and I met quite a few years back in the context of a project at a bank, mm. and I I remember to this day you having run a workshop uh, to determine roles and responsibilities for a number of people in a marketing department in that bank, and the project was a very difficult one and and creating a lot of stress for everyone. And I was I would I admired for the way not only had you managed the workshop by telling things that no one dared to say, but also in the way you engaged with the client in general and with us as the other consultants on the project in general. And it's that it's that audacity on the one side, the caring on the other, and just the truthfulness of being just saying things how that how, in the way they are and being yourself all the time, which I admired very quickly. And I I wasn't in this trade at the time, but that's one of the reasons why I, I know I've remembered that moment because I admired that. And I know that's one of the reasons why we still we still like to see each other hmm. because I know there's no difference in the Darren at work and the Darren uh, outside of work. <laughs> and I hope he thinks the same thing of me because uh, I don't know about you, but I have trouble relating with people who've got split personalities. Yeah, well, it's really difficult to know who you're talking to. Yeah. I, I also think it's, um, you know, it's it goes to the core of authenticity. Yes. Because you said before, most people can detect, you know. We're very good at it. Bullshit. Yes. Yeah. We can detect it. If we think someone's not being straight with us, there is something that just starts in the pit of your stomach and just starts to eat you away that I'm being lied to or there's something inauthentic about it. Yeah. And the only people that could really pull that off well are called actors yeah. and they're very good actors. The trouble is that they spend their whole lives pretending to be other people, other characters, you know. So I don't think... That, and they get paid a lot of money when they're successful for doing it because it's not easy. It's Anyone who thinks they can be an actor, just try and do some acting in a video camera, you know, in front of a camera and watch it back. Yeah. It's so much easier just being who you are. And then the, for me the next secret is accepting that that's who you are. Yes. You know, because there's no other you, that's the one. Yeah. You can do things like you can round bits, the rough bits off, or you can you know, smooth things over, or you can pick up little, you know, things to do or to be aware of. But largely, you are you. Yeah. I can't remember who said that, but may try to be yourself, everyone else has taken. <laughs> I, I, I love that. I, yeah. I can't remember who said it, but I, the quote stayed with me because I, I really like the idea. And I think part of uh, the, the value of what we bring is by working on the conversations people need to have in the context of work, we get them to accept without being psychological in, in any way or psychoanalytical in any way in the work we do. We get them to um, uh, come back to very simple things, uh, to put words on their desires, their needs, their emotions, their agreements, their disagreements, um, their ambitions, whatever it might be, or sometimes even to dare to ask questions. Um, and in order to achieve that as a, as a way of, as a side effect to that work, it gets people to start questioning themselves as to why they've grown to behave in certain ways and to overcome a fear of displeasing. Because I believe profoundly that due to the fear of displeasing, we end up pleasing no one. Uh, and business, working together in the context of business is about pleasing, not in the sense of being a people pleaser, but in a sense of does that person want to work with me uh, rather than with someone else. You know, that's you talked about authenticity, and I think authenticity cannot be taught as a technique. 
I think it, ha- it has to be a very personal decision to start off with mm. about how do I, who am I, how do I want to be seen? And it's the same thing when it comes to leadership. And often now we can start to see those notions coming together about authentic leadership, but authentic leadership and why not authentic everything else. Mm. Um, and, you know, about leadership, it's more than the quality of the vision or the ambition that I might have for my business, my entity. Uh, uh, the real question is, does that person want to go there with me? Yeah. It's like, you know, and it's who like, I am. And yeah. who I am, absolutely. And actually, you know, being accepted by your partner in in your personal, you know, romantic or, or yeah. relationship, you know, people go, oh, that's incredibly personal. But often I think people take that same level of rejection into business mm. where they think that if someone decides not to do business with you, it's because they chose they didn't choose me. But that's their choice. I mean, it's not like it's a lifelong thing. And the other interesting thing is I've had situations where people said, no, we don't want to work with you. And then three years later, suddenly you're working together. So it's also not forever. Absolutely. Yeah, that a no is not no for the rest of all eternity. And the reverse is also true. I mean, some of the biggest volume of business, actually not some of the biggest volume of business that we've ever done by far, is with one of the only clients to whom we said, we don't want to work with you. <laughs> Fantastic. It's a true story. Yeah. It's a true story. One of the things you said earlier is, um, you know, and you said without getting into the sort of psychology or the, you know, the sort of psychotherapy, but getting people to write down their fears and their desires and their, you know, their goals and things is such a powerful thing to do because it is. people carry this around in their heads and almost never have an opportunity to articulate it, even as a spoken word. But to actually put it down on paper is such a powerful thing to do because it's there yes. and you can suddenly go from it being as part of your thinking to a, a something that you can then reflect on quite objectively but also at the same time personally, can't you? Absolutely, absolutely. And and we, we you know... I, I so much agree. And w- the same principle we apply, not because we get people to do a reflexive type of work on the emotions that they've got, how they feel about their work, their personality styles, their leadership styles, and so on and so forth. We get them to work out at a much more micro level how they feel about the conversations they need to have and the conversation they're about to have and how they feel about the conversations they just had. And how they feel about the ambition they're pursuing in the conversation they're having. And how they feel about the way they're spoken to in the conversation they're having. And, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, we take a very micro view on a conversation by conversation basis. But it's the sum of conversations that build relationships through time. And success or failure, joy or pain. Uh, and we give, you know, I, I think those those. Analytical processes are very, very important to be done, but we've chosen another path, which is a very hands-on operational path about let's develop that micro process and the everything day things we need to do every day. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a personal discipline rather than a stop and go I do once a year, uh, for either for myself or with my psychologist when I need to, <laughs> uh, or my dog. Yeah. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's something which is very hands-on and very concrete. So that you see benefits immediately. 
So, so the training, yeah. I, I guess it's training that you're. We offering. call it we call it training because we have we have to be paid out of a budget, yeah. and that budget is generally labelled train uh, the training budget. But it's, it's very it's, practical, isn't it's, it? It's, it's very. It's like two in one. It's two in one. It's mm-hmm. it's. Sorry, I interrupted, but it's it's like coaching and training in the same thing. It's mm-hmm. an experience, and through that experience, you learn. Because mm. that that's what you know. Often people, you know, presentation skills. Mm. You go along, they give you the theory, they get you to stand up, they videotape you, and then they critique the the presentation right. Right. to tell you how you could be better. Yes. I imagine... And there's a few bits missing to that in, in that process for me. Uh, yeah. and so I that's what I was going to ask. Sequence, yeah, yeah. Is, uh, it's like when you learn, when you learn a sport often... People don't first start to give you the theory of the sport. Very often they get you to start hitting balls very quickly. And it's through the process of the hitting of the ball and the coach observing you do it and you observing the coach do it that you actually learn and end up conceptualizing a few things. I'm not talking about the rules of tennis. I'm talking about how you actually execute the, the act of playing tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the way, if that applies well to karate and to to any sort of discipline and, and sporting activity, it should apply to any acquisition of a new reflex because conversations are just about reflex. Um, so one of the first things we, we do is we get people to through a process of rediscovery of a number of things, which are the things that it took us many years to understand, which is what makes conversations both effective and pleasant in, in the fact of doing so. Um, so it's a reversed mechanism of rather than give them a theory, we get them to rediscover it through exercises and role plays. Those exercises and role plays being real conversations. Mm. Um, uh, so we don't start with a model, we end up with a model. So that's yeah. a very important principle so that even though everyone gets the same handout, they've conceptualized it in a way which is unique to, to who they are and to their experience. And once they've identified those principles, um, then we get them to hit as many balls as we need or repeat the exercise as many times as we need in real life, high stake business conversations they need to have until we witness with them that they're able to perform differently than they used to. So it's not just about the critiquing aspect. It's also about the observing together the process of progress. Yeah, and coaching. Is, and coaching, but, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and allowing coaching. people to integrate that into actually doing it. It's in, um, there, was, there is a uh, creative guy, Nick Law, you may or may not have heard of him, but he, he says, you know, human beings learnt in three different ways. The first way they learnt was sitting around the campfire telling stories about the hunt that they went on that earlier that day or the, the previous days. The next way they learned was to practice. So, you know, getting a spear and having the skin set up and then practice hunting the woolly mammoth. Mm. And he said, then finally you learn by actually doing it and going out and hunting. He said the third one is the most effective way. Actually doing and behaviour is the most effective way. That storytelling is a way of passing on experience when you can't do the other actually experience it for yourself absolutely and uh, we don't have the luxury unfortunately of sitting down in the actual meetings and conversations people have in the context of work although i'm sure technically would work out really well and be extremely useful if we could so we have to extract those conversations and bring them into the training room Uh, and we use those conversations which are future conversations they need to have which which we role play as a as a training platform and 
effectively does two things within the same with the same in the same process is on the one hand we're actually very that's the coaching aspect of it we coach them and we prepare them to have the conversation that's just about to happen so they get immediate uh, immediate implementation and immediate return from investment which has all the virtues of them wanting to do it again um and at the same time we use that conversation as a training platform to develop a reflex that they could apply in any other uh, any other conversation that they need to have uh, on the same on the same topic or on a very different one Okay. Now, I just want to um, to move the conversation forward because you're a French company. Yes. Okay. And France, you know, I know people talk about the world becoming a, a global village because of the internet. Yeah. But, you know, I think there are cultural differences and, and proud cultural yeah. differences between different company, yeah. uh, countries. But you have got a successful business in multiple countries. Yes. How does culture come into this training and, and this technique. And is it a big issue? Because I'm just sitting here from my own personal experience of you know, doing business in India, having a meeting in India, is quite different for me to the US, which is totally different to the UK. Mm. You know? And so I know that I've walked into, you know, and Japan, totally different again. Yet I want to know, because I can also see that what you're talking about goes to the very essence of what it means to be a human being and to build relationships. So is there a big difference? Do you have to consider those things? Yeah. Um, you, yeah, you said culture is a big issue. I, I, I think culture around the world and the way people are brought up um, is one of the biggest providers of business for us. Okay. It's a big source of business. Um, and just, I want to rectify something. You said we're a French business. We originated in France. Our group head office is in France. But because of those cultural reasons, which I'll go to in a minute, we this, the strategy we've got in terms of developing internationally is to have local people serve local markets in local language because the language in which we would do it is fundamental. Um, uh, and that's why I was glad the day I met Steve Shepard, who's representing us in Australia, because w beyond me not being here, it's important to have people from a local culture who, who are able to both talk about it and, and deliver it. If I'll go back to what I said before, you know, how do you want to be spoken to? Whether you ask a Japanese, a Chinese, or an American, or a French person, or an Aussie, they'll say the same thing. Simple, clear, direct, polite, warm, respectful. And then when you observe the way they have the conversations, for reasons that are often very linked to culture itself, the conversations end up being right the opposite of that. Um, let's take a, a bit of a caricatural example, but even the Japanese would admit to that. Japan, the Japanese know they're not direct, right? Mm. Um, but, but the paradox is when you ask them, how do you want to be spoken to? They say direct. And I know because we deliver work in Japanese for Japanese people. So I'm not making this up. Um, and the reason why that happens, and I'm using Japan as an example, but this is true everywhere around the world, is... Bec uh, to a great extent because of the way people are educated. You know, uh, a, a few years back, you had a, a little Darren and a little Clément who were born and born just about the same. And then you take them 20 years down the track and on the one side, you've got an Aussie and on the other guy, on the side, you've got a French person because of the layers of education from family, from schooling, from the church, from the army and from business too now because now businesses are in charge of training people. Mm. Um, and those layers of education, unfortunately, 
too often end up creating a gap between the way we would like to speak to each other and the way we do speak to each other. You know, we've all been told by our parents as children, you know, you shouldn't lie. You shouldn't lie. Yet, I'm sh- I hope this will speak to a number of listeners. I'm sure many people have experienced this before. Let's imagine you're a little kid at home on the weekend and there's the phone that rings. And then you've got uh, your parents' neighbors calling in saying, oh, we'd love to have you over for a barbecue on oh, Sunday. Oh, um, such and such is sick. Yeah, such and such is sick. Or, Johnny's oh, no, sick. that's very sweet of you, but we've already got something on. Or, yeah. you know, and then you look at your mom or your dad or whoever's responding on the phone. And you go, but that, that's not true. So we end they're up, called white lies. Yes, but it's still you is learn a lie. that when you're older that there's a difference between lying yes. and white lies, and which are the lies that we tell just to smooth through the social awkwardness. Absolutely, uh, because because <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah, and and you know white lies, sure, but it's still the word lie in there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's not the color that makes it better. Yeah. Um, uh, so you know, I, I, everyone does. Well, then it becomes degrees, doesn't it? It becomes because, degrees, and then that's interpretive. And then you go into a toxic work environment, which is very much about blaming people. Right. And then suddenly, the degree of lying to avoid getting blamed gets higher, you know, larger and larger. Absolutely. And so suddenly, you find yourself someone that would filling out a form would say, "Yes, I value honesty." Find, goes and works in an environment where they're needing to lie almost every day yeah. or just fight, to survive. Depending on yeah. which extreme they sit on. Yeah. So that's, the, that, that's exactly the paradox is when we are obsessed with preserving social link, we end up too often lying or not saying. Uh, or on the contrary, when we're in self-defense mode and we're up for a fight, we, we end up aggressing other people mm. um, and telling you know, the truth to their face. And it's not the truth. It's... it's um, it's just plain, plain uh, disrespect. Mm. Um, so the whole, uh, this is only an analogy and an example, but to, to say... It's a great one, though, I have to uh, tell you, because it's the great paradox. There you go. Of you know, How many companies have honesty as a value? Almost all of them. And how many and, at some point have either lied to shareholders, lied to their staff, absolutely. lied to the government? Absolutely. Just as part of absolutely. business. Absolutely. Because the business in itself is nothing. The business is constituted with individuals who make decisions about what the business does. Mm. Um, and, you know, I often have clients who say, oh, we need to see what you guys do so that we make sure it aligns with our values. I generally respond, I already know it does. Because... If it didn't, you wouldn't put the values, you, you wouldn't put that on the wall. I can guarantee that uh, it already aligns. What we will help you do is to make sure that the behavior your staff adopts is more aligned with the values you've already announced you have. Mm. Yeah, because, see, for I'll, I'll, give you some, I'll give you some very basic examples, you know. Um, let's take caricatures for a minute. You know, there were caricatures of where we got always... Like, you know, an exaggeration of some sort, but they've got some truth in them. Let's take uh, an example of an English person and a French person, an English from Britain. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, um, a French person who's uh, disagreeing with someone could, in the context of work, we will go very well go off and say, you know, you're completely wrong. You're you're, you're gonna you're gonna screw this completely. You've uh, you just you just don't get it. Yeah. You know. Um, an English person wouldn't say that unless they're drunk. <laughs> they wouldn't say that in the context of work. You know, an, an angry French person, an angry English person, they don't look the same. 
And an English person would have a much more implied way of saying that they disagree. You know, it might sound like, oh, well, that's an interesting point of view. Let's ask the others what they think, mm. which is, you, you know, you would need to have been brought up pretty close to that culture to figure out what that means. You know, sometimes I make fun of, of the English, who I love, by the way, by saying if an English person says to you that's interesting, just be be very cautious. <laughs> or courageous. <laughs> or courageous. So, and, but the problem is that, that aggression of that caricatural French person and the caricature of the English person, none of them suit me mm. because it's an ability to neither throw a brick to someone's face nor fall into the extreme political correctness. It's an ability to say to someone with the, mo the greatest you know, kindness in the world, I have a radically different point of view to yours. Mm. Because the question is not, are they right or am I wrong? The question is, do I agree or disagree? The question is not, are they lying or telling the truth? The question is, do I believe them or not? Mm. The question is not, are they honest or dishonest? The question is, do I trust them? Uh, the question, are they an idiot or not? The question is, do I admire them or not? These are the real things we should be asking ourselves and talking about in the conversations we have. And walk, you know, those two extremes that I've illustrated through those basic examples, they are not, that, that's not the way things need to be. Mm. And I want to I want to add something. You know, this is not an, a way of avoiding all conflict. Sometimes conflicts is necessary, um, and sometimes it can even be a choice to enter conflict as a way of overcoming something. But at least giving people a skill to neither fall into those two extremes is a way of getting them to, ha to have the fights that they've chosen to have. Yeah. Look, I I think um, the only time that conflict is incorrect is going back to something you said very early on. You can have conflict, and I'm talking about serious conflict, you know, yeah. where there are very raised emotions in this, as long as it is still respectful, where the conflict is actually the conflict of ideas and not the, the belittling of each other or the, the name-calling or the game-playing, because That's then communication is completely broken down. You've got to, you know, like children in the playground pointing fingers and throwing sticks and stones at each other. Yeah. But I think people get those two conflated, they and they often think that you have to avoid conflict because it's wrong. Conflict is perfectly acceptable as long as it's about the concept that you're discussing or disagreeing on yeah. and that you do it in a way that you're still respecting the other person. You still respect that the, the other idea. One of the things I've always been good at is arguing with people and I'm good at it because I learned very early on, listen to the other person. Mm. Stop sitting there thinking about what you're going to say next and actually listen to what the person's saying because if you want to actually beat someone in an argument, win the point. It's showing the flaws in their thinking more than it is proving you're right. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Because you can keep shouting from the rooftops, you know, this, my, this is my point of view and it's right. But it's actually much more effective to keep asking questions of the other person to the point that suddenly everyone, including them, realises that there's a flaw. Mm. I, I then that opens agree. it up to, I okay, if there's agree. a flaw here, is there something in my perspective that overcomes that flaw? Because ultimately we should be looking for what is the best solution. 
Yes. And for that, you have to accept to put ego aside to, to some extent. Yeah. Um, so I, and I, to go back to that question about, you know, the transcultural aspect of things um, or the cultural differences aspect of things is we, uh, by doing the work we've done with Antarctica 30 years ago about looking at what is it that people do when the relationships they have produce more often what they want with a good use of time and energy and at the same time uh, creating close bonds. Um, we've um, we found with unknowingly at the time something which is completely transcultural because although on the surface a lot of the codes are different at much deeper level the the desires the expectations are very much the same um, and that you know I, I left France when I was six my, my, I'm the son of of, of expats um, I lived in New Zealand I live in South Korea I lived in Morocco I lived in England I lived in Australia I've been living been in planes and traveling around the world since I was a kid and I think I already had that deep inside of me before coming into this trade is that there are many more things that make us the same than, than things that make us different. And that I often have more things in common with a Japanese person living many, many thousands of miles away from me than I do with my French neighbor. Uh, and that it all depends on whether we can tap into those things or not. Um, and the, it's just the journey that we need to make a Japanese person make on average. And the journey we need to go through with an average American person, which will be different, but at the, the, the end game is bringing them in with their codes, their language, their personalities, the, their topics as close as possible to direct and respectful. Because, you know, too often people think direct or respectful. I'm convinced that one of the best ways of being respectful is being direct. Mm. And, 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 and I, I like to look at things very differently. So part of the challenge there is that people bond over shared experiences. Yes. Right? So that if you've had quite different cultural experiences, yeah. because going to uh, junior school in America, in the right. Midwest, yeah. could be very different to going to school in LA, could be totally different to Japan, could be totally different to regional France. Yeah. So the experience is there. The actual core, the, the emotion of, you know, either fear on your first day or excitement or achievement or failure or, or being ostracised, that's the human level. Mm. But that often socially the conversations exist at the superficial, which is, oh, you know, that did you grow up watching that television program or, or whatever? Yeah. It's interesting because what you're talking about is actually having the respect for someone to go beyond the superficial. Yeah, yeah. And really get to what is it as a human being that we share yes. and we and how we can then help each other. Yes. Uh, for sure. And, you know, I, I remember, to give you an example, when I was six, I, I landed in a local Kiwi school, you know, no English schools in Wellington, mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, what is it, 35 years back. Um, uh, so I landed, landed, I didn't speak a word of English. My teacher didn't speak a word of French and nor did the little boys and girls in my school. And the one thing we connected on was football, soccer, mm. whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And the question is not knowing all differences. The principle is expecting the difference. Yeah. Uh, um, 
And when I, when I, you know, too often when people try to work across borders and across cultures, they, as a way of trying to relate, they try to figure out all the other person's codes. I reckon there's a, you quick, quickly that becomes a hindrance, you know, and, and it can even be pushed to its extreme, even disrespectful of the other person when you start to try to mimic them. And there's a great quality or it's an advantage also. People only see the inconvenience. I reckon there's, a, there's, a, there's an advantage of working with someone from a different culture is their level of forgiveness is so much higher. Mm. Uh, when I came back to France, after having, you know, as I described before, lived around the world and lived in Australia for 12 years, I've got a very French name. I look French. I speak French without the hint of an accent. But I can tell you when the stuff I ignored, stuff I missed, stuff I, uh, I was in a discovery process going back to France, the tolerance levels of the, uh, the, of the people who are my compatriots was, was extremely high. Mm. Whereas if I make a cultural or a communication mistake with, with, uh, with a Chinese person, to give another example, chances are they'll forgive me. Mm. They know I'm not meant to know. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. And when we make mistakes, whether it's about cross-cultural communication or just with someone else in general, for me, there's two possibilities because I will make mistakes. Possibility number one, the relationship is so poor that they will probably decide to use it as a way of degrading it more or the relationship is good enough that we use it as a way of creating a stronger link than we had before. Mm. These are the only two possibilities. Yeah. That's why I talk more about relationships than I do about communication. And only if you go into that interaction and that relationship with the open mind of learning yes. and moving forward rather than criticising and shutting it down. Uh, I, I was once given the advice that... Um, Darren, don't try and learn all the nuances, cultural nuances, you know, like in, for Japan and the different... They said, just be yourself because if you try and you screw it up, it can be an offensive. It's better off to say, this is who I am. I completely And agree. be incredibly, you know, open and honest in the way that you deal business than it is making token gestures to, as a... Uh, hat tip to someone else's culture. I completely agree. Mm. So, you know, learning the anti-active discipline is a way for the Japanese to learn how to stay, say no whilst without violating their culture. Mm. It's a way of helping the Chinese express what they want without starting a revolution. Mm. It's a way of helping maybe, again, pardon the caricatures, but you have to have caricatures to make a point. It, uh, maybe helping the Dutch be a bit warmer and closer. Mm. Maybe helping some Americans be less blunt when they say what they have to say, you know, or maybe to give an Aussie example, helping some Aussies overcome that wonderful mateship thing, which is creates, you know, proximity between Aussies, which I reckon sometimes makes it difficult to get to make things to get things said at the, because it's at possibly at the cost of the relationship and relationships are important in Australia. Mm. Yeah. Or on the other side, you go, oh, well, it's a blokey culture, so you're going to throw bricks in people's faces because <laughs> that's okay just to say things to their face. Mm. No, that's just being plain rude. Yeah, it so, is rude. Exactly. So. Hey, look, we've run out of time. Uh, it's a conversation that we have had uh, for hours and I'm sure we will have it for hours again. So, Clement, thank you for uh, making time. For uh, one last uh, question before yeah. you go is... Are there any cultures that you really struggle with?